Today's episode is sponsored by GameFound, the crowdfunding platform for gamers by gamers. GameFound is constantly seeking to innovate tabletop crowdfunding and recently introduced StretchPay, which allows backers to pay in installments, which is a huge win for both backers and creators alike. With a large, growing community on board, an experienced marketing team, and unique features, GameFound is the perfect choice for all tabletop creators. So if you're wanting to run your own crowdfunding campaign, be sure to check them out at GameFound.com. What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about player experience, talking about what does it look like to put theme and mechanism and everything together to craft the type of experience that makes for a fun and enjoyable game. And I'm talking to Johnny Pack, one of my favorite designers, a guy that is just so good at taking ideas and concepts and putting them together so that the experience feels good. It feels interesting. It feels real. It, it feels fun. And we talk about the difference between puzzles and games. We talk about designing for different types of players. We talk about utilizing randomness to create these interesting, fun moments. We talk about fuzzy logic and a whole lot more. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans, and the record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome Johnny Pack. So Johnny, you are a designer best known for Merchant's Cove, but then you've also got these really cool Western-themed games like Coloma, Fistful of Meeples, Sierra West. Like You've got some amazingly thematic games, and I love how you have found a way to kind of marry up theme with the mechanics. So it actually kind of feels like I'm doing this thing or I am actually kind of in this world, even though it's, you know, expressed through these more abstractive, ex abstracted mechanisms. And I reached out to you recently, you, you're a contributor to my find the fun book and really appreciate you contributing to that. And you, you said something interesting uh, a while back that I wanted to, to dive into with this podcast. You said, I lean more into unsolvable behavioral economic dilemmas versus creating complicated, but solvable mental puzzles. So what does that mean exactly? <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot to unpack, which, uh, which I'm happy to attempt to do so. So I think um, kind of the, the, the negative, how we could look at this would be that games share a lot of things with puzzles, especially I think even, even more so in some of the contemporary games where we could look at um, what we might think is like player board centric games or the roll and write revolution, that kind of thing where there's a lot of, um, putting putting things together in an abstract way, crossing lines off and all that sort of thing where uh, it's less of a medium of interaction sometimes than, than say some previous games in the past where you know party games, guessing games, or even kind of the first wave of Euro games, that kind of thing. And so um, my introduction to um, tabletop gaming was really through kind of that first wave of Catan-esque uh, Euro games. And so a lot of those games, 
by today's standards considered actually like air quotes mean um, because of the player interaction. You can not trade with somebody, you can block somebody, you can do a lot of um, indirect negative player interaction stuff and then some direct negative player interaction stuff. And so kind of in this, where I think things have drifted a little bit is into kind of a puzzle centric, uh, what Jeff Warner would almost call like a Baroque version of game design versus like a Bauhaus style game design where there's a lot of levers to pull on your personal player board that creates a sensation of working with all these things without actually super needing to know what other players are even doing um, through majority of the game. Yeah, that's interesting. And I like the idea of breaking it down. Is your game more gamey or more puzzly, right? Because I feel like sometimes as designers, we don't think enough about that. And then you end up potentially with a game that is solvable, right? Where a player just has to crack the code. Okay, I play this card in this round. I play that card in the next round and this and that and the other. And then I'm probably going to win, which I mean, it's kind of cool that moment you realize that and you crack the code and you beat all your friends. But at the same time, it's like, well, why would I really want to play it again if I know the, the, the you know, like the parameters? Like I know step one, step two, step three. Now the game almost plays itself. That's not particularly fun. So talk to me as far as your thoughts between like, what is a puzzle? What is a game? Not necessarily like specific de- definitions, but just in your mind when you're designing. Uh, yeah, obviously, like we end up way out in the weeds answering what exactly a puzzle is and what exactly a game is. And so that might be... Uh, somebody more qualified can answer those questions or write a book about it. Um, Keith uh, Bergen has a really good book, um, a couple books. One of them is game design theory and the other one is clockwork game design. And he actually defines like interactive systems to puzzles, to games, to competitions and how they kind of hybridize into these things that we effectively call, you know, in his case, video games and board games, how they're actually our games. Um, so to kind of sidestep those, those definitions and maybe look um, kind of maybe on the spectrum of what is puzzling, what is um, more of a game would be something where we could look at, and like a social deduction game is very much about the, the politics and the figuring out of the people's behaviors on that side. And then we could look at something like a, um, maybe some of these roll and writes where say dice are rolled by some player and everybody records some number onto their crib sheet and kind of cross-references a bunch of things and kind of almost like doing like Sudoku and together, like um, maybe the game on tour would be a good example of a effectively zero interaction game where you take the numbers from the dice, you kind of draw on your map, and at the end of the game, you're really just comparing your, your sheets with each other. You don't really kibitz or talk or leverage any sort of social pressure to do anything. Um, like that and there's with uh there's obviously uncertainty so we have uncertainty as far as how the dice are showing up but barring that there's really nothing that's uh gonna really make you do something different I, you know i'm, I'm not going to try to negotiate with you how to record your dice differently in a game like that where there's no incentives uh across the table from each other so uh kind of looking at the the spectrum like that a lot of times like there's my work is a um let's say game developer and a game designer, sometimes I will encounter a really cool early prototype from a a designer that they're pitching or I'm working on with a a publisher. And a lot of times it feels to me like somebody stumbled across a really cool puzzle and said, wouldn't that make a cool game? And they've kind of gamified a puzzle to a degree. And there's really nothing wrong with that because some of those situations can turn into cool stuff. Like, Here's a question I would I would ask, which I don't have the answer to, is like the popular game Azul 
has very puzzly elements as far as how you're going to configure the layout of your pieces on your player board. But the other half of Azul, which I think is less talked about, is how cutthroat and interesting the draft mechanism is in there. It's very social. It's very much looking at other players' boards, and there's a clean heuristic of if I if I push all this stuff into the middle, you'll have to take it. There's too much. Are you going to be able to you know slough off those negative points by taking the positive of what you actually need? And what kind of sacrificial play did I have to make in order to do such a thing? The draft is fantastic in Azul. I think it's brilliant. And then the back end, like what you're doing as far as administrating you know, how you accept your tiles and score those tiles is more puzzly. And I think, I'm not sure uh, if the chicken or egg, how Kiesling came up with, oh, here's a cool uh, tile placement system. It scores in an interesting way. Or was he like, wait a second, here's this cool drafting system that really pushes people into each other. We just need a place to put these tiles once they take them. Uh, I'm not sure which way that came out, but that, that would be kind of the process I would look at when I encounter a game like that is seeing does it feel like that scale is balanced between the puzzle and the the kind of behavioral economic drafting system that's happening in that? And uh, likewise with prototypes or anything else like that. And you're kind of looking at like, would throwing a puzzle into an otherwise um, social, socially driven sort of game uh, help that? Or would it actually just increase the cognitive load of the game? So it's kind of like... Um, here's here's a task you have to do and you go okay that's that's easy enough but then somebody says but also you know pat your belly and rub your head and you know stand on a leg and spin a couple plates and all of a sudden that simple task doesn't seem so simple anymore and it's almost like there's this uh, it it seems i think there's kind of a uh, there's a word for it in behavioral economics can't remember it's misattribution uh, happens where they actually think the task they're doing is more complex because they're doing a bunch of other tasks on the side but None of those things are actually, um, say, intrinsically rewarding or interesting. It's just a matter of you, you kind of crowd somebody up with this burden, and all of a sudden they feel like, well, I'm, I'm fighting through it. Yay me. And they pat themselves on the back without really examining whether or not each of those subsystems is um, compelling, truly. Yeah, that's super interesting. And to be clear, we're not saying that one way is better or worse or good or bad. Like we're just saying these are different ways of designing games and, and the ways different ways that games can play out. Like if I think about puzzle games that lean more towards the puzzle, a lot of cooperative games are very puzzly. It's almost like the puzzle has been scrambled up in different ways and a lot of times randomly, like pandemic. You're never sure where all the cubes are gonna go in the initial setup and how the cards are gonna kind of be stacked and all that. But it's really just like throwing out pieces all over the table. And now it's a matter of over the course of the game, trying to put them all back in the right spot. And there are some times where the game has scrambled itself to a point where you literally can't win. You don't know that from the beginning necessarily, but if you could examine, you know, play for play, you're like, oh, we, we couldn't have won this game. It was not possible because the puzzle was scrambled up too much based on, you know, how much time we we're going to have and things like that. So I think that's one interesting thing to think about, especially if you're designing solo games or cooperative games is you might lean a little more towards the puzzle, uh, just based on the way the game is going to play out versus competitive games where if it's solvable, because like pandemic has to be in some ways solvable. Like you have to be able to figure out A, B, C, and D because ultimately we have to end up with a, a very specific game state to win versus we're playing against each other. And the end game state, it doesn't matter as much as do I have more points than you? Did I cross the finish line first? Whatever it is. So talk to me a little bit about that. You design a lot of games that are competitive, 
right? And some of them are asymmetrical. Like each player has a very different role. We're doing very different things, but at the same time, um, you want to you want to feel like everything is balanced and that experience is still fair. So how do you do that from a player experience standpoint, making things fair to everybody and, and, and making sure that there isn't just like, oh, here's the one way to win? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a few answers to your question. There's so... Um... One of them is is addressing the fact that there is there is an uncertain element. So with say pandemic or a lot of these other games where even a die roll or something like this, that there's there's a medium that the game is presenting, and then the players react to that, and it kind of you you have a certain I don't know like event horizon or whatever that you kind of come up to, and it's like you can make a bunch of decisions under uncertainty, which is great behavioral economics sort of stuff. And then something will happen, the card is played or this and that, and then you have to respond to that. And you can kind of calculate your uh, risks or you can, you know, YOLO it and just try something that sounds crazy and hope it lands uh, for a bigger return, uh, that sort of thing. And so you're playing against the the game system's uh, outputs, which, which is interesting. But then we have to look at some other sort of games where, uh, games of perfect information that maybe let's say are zero sum two player games. We could say like chess and go or games uh, that are similar with perfect information um, that have no hidden cards, no card draws, no dice are rolled or anything like this. All the information is uh, effectively out there, but it's the complexity and what the players actually do with those decisions that becomes the uncertain element. So we could look at a popular game, maybe Terra Mystica, um, it's kind of heralded as having no really random elements, right? And so it's also asymmetrical. So it's, you know, they've done a lot of work to balance or rebalance it over the years and so on. And still a lot of arguments around that. But there's the game isn't suddenly going to throw something at you where uh, there's a volcano suddenly erupts in the middle of Terra Mystica and everybody has to run away and like event card. It's just not the style of game that that is where um, some games kind of have a, like a dialogue with the players between you know, kind of stuff that the designers baked in to create these experiences as they roll out. So if we looked at something like that as players of uh, games of perfect information versus games um, where there's hidden information, either that players gain cards that they don't know, or there's an event deck or just anything that happens that the players can't ultimately know and they just have to respond to, then um, that does kind of create the difference between whether or not something, again, like air quotes is truly solvable. Um, so even even you know that some of the best computers like AlphaGo is finally like you know beating the best Go players um, out there, and that's very 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 complex. But you think about how simple in certain sense, uh, not in the true sense, that Go is compared to like all the weird levers that you'd have to pull in like a Terra Mystica. It's like you know the the goal is very clear um, what you're trying to do versus aggregate a bunch of victory points from a whole bunch of different sources, from a whole bunch of different asymmetrical abilities that are kind of like rubbing shoulders with each other in kind of these different ways um, in a game like that. Uh, so kind of fast forward to your other half of your question there is how to look at something um, like Merchant's Cove is actually a really good example of a really difficult task to kind of look at it's like it's a victory point game it's a competitive game it's a game where you're trying to uh you know basically become the richest merchant which is equivalent to just summing up the most victory points over a set number of rounds okay but then we have these vastly different player boards that's going on that game so if people aren't really familiar with it it's kind of like each player's got their own player board with their own character and their merchant in this town like you might be the blacksmith you might be the alchemist 
and their entire player board um, has kind of one mechanism that is pretty much universal through all of them is that there's kind of a worker placement thing where you move your merchant to a worker placement spot and it will do something. But the stuff that you do uh, as those merchants is vastly different. Like the blacksmith is kind of rolling dice as a sort of maybe like role players or Sagrada. You're kind of like putting dice together in certain ways. And then we've got something that's a little bit like a potion explosion sort of thing or candy crush where these marbles are coming down this little chute that you're drafting for the alchemist. And uh, the captain is spinning a spinner and then you send little boats out into the sea to explore islands that have treasure on them and bring the those goods back. And other one's like a rondelle where it's thematically kind of slipping through time and bringing back artifacts effects from the past. One's a roll and write. One's kind of Mancala like there's a lot of these different mechanisms. And so trying to look at like a, an efficiency race, like how do you balance these apples to oranges and say like, Oh, if the blacksmith rolls a die, how is that equivalent to the alchemist pulling marbles out of this decanter? And if we sat there and thought about it like that it's really really hard to do that and maybe we'd lose all the wrinkles of the game even if we tried too hard to do that so the sort of sneaky thing there's two things that uh made that game work at all and you know still people might argue if something's you know, balanced or not but one of them is we found kind of a universal uh sauce to make the whole thing work which is spending quote time so it's a time tracking so if i take an action and i spend you know, three hours to do this action worth of stuff on my player board and somebody else does three hours worth of stuff on their player board. We kind of looked at the average amount of time that every round has and the average amount of output of goods that you're manufacturing uh, that could come out of using those hours and corruption and efficiency boosts and all these things over the course of a round of the game. And one of some of the interesting things is like the blacksmiths can use, let's just say, an eight-hour workday to produce a number of goods, but their arc is kind of different. They have to uh, kind of turn them out quickly. Like, here's one, here's another one, here's another one. They make small leaps, and the alchemist kind of aggregates, 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 and makes big batches of stuff. And so you look at the behavioral economic side, which would be like, what what are they, what's the advantage and disadvantage of doing that? So from the alchemist standpoint, um, it's interesting is you can watch the market, which I'll talk about a little bit, um, which way things, the values are growing in all this and try to respond to it in the zero hour, kind of wait, 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 and then respond. Um, where the blacksmith is actually more, um, has to make this, those decisions at sooner intervals. It can't just hold out and then make everything at the last minute. But in so doing, it also influences what those goods are value-wise because they have to make these deposits more frequently and therefore they can kind of shape the market with a little bit more ease than say the alchemist could. And so you look at the the difference between those two players going like, all right, you're going to curate the market, but maybe I'll capitalize on the market once you curate it and I'll spend my time just watching what you're doing piggyback on you or I'll work against you or and so on. And so um, that boils down to the last thing is how much are these goods actually worth? Because if we said, oh, okay, the blacksmith has a, you know, gauntlet that's worth five victory points or five, you know, gold. And then the uh, alchemist has a potion. Let's say, I don't know, it's worth six gold. It's like, how would you, how would you do the math to look at these, the difference between the, should this be a six? Should this be a four? These small numbers sorts of math that in some Euro games and things like that would be all the difference. Like, you know, a point's a point. Um, so the other kind of method that we went with is to have 
effectively like a, a market that changes the value of these different things over the course of play, which is player driven. So it wasn't just like, oh, you pull a card out and yellow goods are worth more. Um, what you end up doing is you pull a meeple out of a bag, which is going to mean yellow goods potentially could be more, but we gave agency to the players to decide which boat that the meeples are going to go in. And then they're going to uh, come to shore to the, the cove, and then they're going to buy things from the merchants based on those things. So it's a simple corollary is like if if you're manufacturing large yellow goods like say a big you know yellow sword or a big yellow potion whatever else and then the yellow adventurers come to the the dock then those things are going to have a higher selling price and it's simply multiplicative so the base price might be okay it's a five let's say dollar gauntlet if there's more demand for it it would go up to a 10 and then a 15 and 20 it just goes up with each increment like that and so small numbers got kind of blown out um, by this method which is which was intentional to not say oh this good is worth five this is worth six this is should be worth five and a half should be six it's kind of like you know what this could go from zero if there's no market for it could go to five if it just sells at kind of its slab which isn't necessarily good or 10 or 15 20 and so on we kind of look at what the ceilings are with these things and where the floor is. So they can go from being worth nothing to potentially a lot. Like, you know, you can sell one good for 48 coins in that game. And that's enough to be maybe 25% of your score if you do it right. So there's these kind of like, what call them as like a, a black swan or a tail event that is so disproportionately big in its effect that it kind of washes out a lot of, small numbers sort of math stuff where if it was truly a point solid game you say okay i went to uh wash my dishes and i get a victory point and then i uh you know move this over here i get two victory points in addition to whatever i'm doing the game doesn't really dish out small victory points like that it kind of lumps them into these goods and you really try to sell them at these multiplicative uh numbers so between the time track and then the actual valuation and scoring of those things we don't actually have like the same sort of um baseline numbers that we would if we were trying to calculate all these apples and orange oranges so even when i see a bgg so he says oh i lost by you know 48 points i'm like did you have any goods left over it's like and then they always like oh yeah well the last minute so-and-so parked the boat on the other island which i wanted to and it would have swung the other way they would have lost 36 i would have been at 48 and i would have won and so it looks like going from fourth place to first place was in fact, a turn away, not so much a matter of trying to calculate, I would have had to, you know, aggregate points, points, points from all these different things in order to reach them. Oh, it's impossible. Throw my hands up. It was really just a matter of an event that changed. And again, it was uh, a player driven event uh, more specifically. So long winded answer, but that's kind of uh, a method behind that sort of thing. But I think that's really the heart of it, though. It's not that you drew a card and now the game dictated that that boat went to that island or that many meeples were added to that boat and I didn't really have a say in it and I've got all these yellow things, but now there's no yellow things because the game said so. It's it's player driven, right? You get that interesting, um, oh, I, I want to do this, but that's going to help you and now I have to figure out is it going to help you more than it helps me and so maybe I do something different. But that's interesting choices. And at the end of the game, like you said, it's always great when players can go back and figure out exactly why they won or exactly why they lost. And, and if the game can come down to, oh, man, I had a decision. I went left. I should have gone right. And that's why I lost. Next time we play, I'll, I'll think a little harder. And I'll, I'll, now I understand the game a little bit better and I can do things differently. Or I won because of the same thing. Like, hey, you went left. I went right. I made the better choice. Therefore, I won the game versus 
you know, unfortunately, a lot of times point salad games, you look at them and you're like, I have no idea. There was probably like 74 decisions that I made that would, you know, that kind of messed me up or, or got me the victory. And so being able to kind of pinpoint winning or losing is, is super helpful. Another thing I want to touch on, you were talking about uh, whenever computers figured out how to beat humans, right, at chess and at Go. I read an article, article a while back, and it might be different now, especially with the advances in AI. It seems like every every minute, you know, computers are getting smarter than us. But at one point, the players had figured out how to beat com- the computers again, kind of like to take the championship back by playing randomly. They would play normally, and then they would do something completely out of nowhere, unnecessary, makes no sense, and do like a random move. And the computer would like kind of freak out for a second. It's like, wait, what? Wait, what? It would like have to recalculate all these things. And then the computer would make a weird play. And then the player would go back into their normal strategy. And so the players figured out how to win against machines with randomness. Right. And so I thought that was super interesting and in how, you know, this, this game that had been solved, basically the computer had figured out two plus two is four. That's how I beat you. But then the players were, were like, okay, well, let's throw a little 0.25 in there and let's see what happens with the math. <laughs> Just messing with stuff. And so anyway, Let's, let's jump back to your process. You were talking about figuring out, okay, is this going to be a four? Is this going to be a six and all that? When you're designing for player experience, really trying to bring out, what was it? Unsolvable, unsolvable behavioral economic dilemmas. What, is that, what does that look like from your design process? Are you starting with this massive you know, hunk of granite at the beginning and you're just trying to sculpt it down, you know, chip away, chip away, chip away? Are you more of an artist that you have an idea and then you build upon that from from nothing? How does it work when you're creating one of these games? Uh, I think probably more of the artist side, but but I think if somebody else saw that, they would see it maybe as the sculptor because, you know, what I think comes away is just a nucleus of something might be what I've had some other friends who make like very smaller smaller games and they go, Wow, your your game is like five of my games, you know, because it's just the scope of kind of what their goals are, which uh, is admirable. Like, I, I'd have a lot of difficulty making like a eighteen card um, game that's any good, that sort of thing. And I have some friends that made those, and they're fantastic. So, uh, so I do kind of go and find um, a handful of mechanisms that I think are interesting, and then they support each other in ways that this mechanism leads into that one in a cool way has a cool feedback loop and maybe they kind of make some gears turn in some new ways. Cause I think in this day and age, it's, it's a little bit um, hard to think oh, I'm going to come up with an absolutely new mechanism from scratch. Like let's say the deck building, arguably that kind of thing. Um, but now we're seeing things like um, Dune Imperium, Arnak, Endless Winter where it's deck building and worker placement. So at one point, both of those mechanisms were, um, relatively fresh feeling and new, right? And now they're hybridized into these ways like this. And we're seeing a lot of games where there's a bunch of mechanisms that gamers are getting used to. They're being uh, perfected more so than their rough forms. And then they're being kind of married together in new ways that creates even richer experiences. So once, um, let's say I have a handful of mechanisms I think are kind of uh, gelling well together, then I tend to stop and I won't go forward until I find a theme that I want to work with. And that might be something I want to work with, or um, maybe I know that the publisher I'm working with might have like a wish list where they really, really want a game about such. And so I'm always kind of checking these mechanisms against that. And from there, it's what I call a um, thematically informed design where uh, you let the theme kind of point the way for the the rest of the mechanisms. And it can still be a very... um, 
mechanistically drawn games. So let's look at like uh, one I've been working on for a while here. It's is Unconscious Minds coming out next year. It's had a lot of, uh, you know, it's got rondelle movement. It's got, you know, kind of contract fulfillment things like speaking in the mechanical sense. It has a lot of resource management, just the kind of thing you see in Euro games and is a point salad game. And as we examined it, uh, we found that, okay, you're, you're blocking people on the worker placement board. That's one of the primary means of information uh, there uh, where interaction. We're also looking at some tracks, like being first up a track is being better than being last on track, that sort of thing. So some comparative stuff. Um, and we're just going like, all right, this doesn't have a lot, a huge amount of interaction points in this, as in the sense like a dudes on a map game might or something like that, right? And so um, as we're kind of coming to completion, it's going like, well, this game probably has enough room for maybe one more subsystem. And then some sort of interaction. So I was thinking about the theme a little bit and just kind of ruminating, going like, what could it be? What could it be to make people do something? And, you know, some games like, oh, uh, add a follow mechanism or whenever one player does this, you can bet whether or not it's going to come out that way. And some of these other things, or should there be a trading phase or should they bid to take their actions? Uh, it's like, no, 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 no. So, so something came back from when I was a kid playing Rummy Cube, which uh, is kind of a classic, you know, family game, which... I really enjoyed and there's this mechanism in there where people have melded all these straights and pairs and things like out, out there on the the table and they're kind of just out there and you're trying to clear your board in that game uh one of the cool things about that game is you can kind of go out and mess up everything as long as everything when you're done messing it up is been reformed back into a legal spot so just maybe to play this one tile and I see you've got a straight over here, but you didn't actually need the four because it's legal to have just a one, two, three. So then I look at that, but I need the color from over there. You can kind of break all these things apart, put them all back together, and then find a legal place where that tile would fit into like the, the requirements. There. And I thought that was really cool because it's, in a sense, very interactive that you're, you're effectively taking other people's what would normally be their tableau or something and working it to your own needs and then putting it back out there into the world. Um, so with Unconscious Mind, what I kind of came up with is this idea that you are uh, citing papers from each other and writing books and treatises. And so as you kind of meld cards into your area, you're, you're able to put these book overlays on there and you get points and you get, you know, go tracks, that sort of thing. It's, it's good for you to write these books. And then there's a little authorship token on there. So what happens later on is if I were to write a book and you had already written one, I could actually cite some of the cards that have been tucked into your book and reference those and put them into my book to help me to complete mine easier. However, you get kickback points for having done that to begin with. And so it becomes this whole thing where, okay, do I put the books out there early to seed it out here so I know that people are going to cite for me and I'll get a lot of these instant rewards? Or do I sandbag and kind of wait until everybody else has done a bunch of books? And then it'll be that much easier for me and I'll try to come in there and swoop the last of the books that have been done this way. So you see this kind of thing where the Rummy Cube-esque sharing of the knowledge, the books, the cards that have been played um, all kind of work into this ecosystem. And so that was kind of the, the last little feathers of like, we needed another piece of interaction. We need something thematically that made sense. That wasn't, you know, like, oh, my professor is going to go and, you know, knock over your your clientele booth or something like this, right? It's It didn't make sense to do mean things uh, or sabotage each other in a game like this. Um, so it, I wanted to find effectively a positive indirect player interaction, which was this 
back scratching sighting sort of thing and the brinkmanship of bringing something on early versus late and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, no, I think you did that. That makes such good thematic sense, right? That I am putting something out first and now other, you know, doctors or whatever are citing me as their source and I would get some reputation and I would get some mm -hmm. points, you know, in, in the context of the game. That makes sense thematically. And so talk to me a little bit about that when you're, when you're trying to figure out the marriage of theme and mechanism, right? Especially you, you've made a lot of Western themed games, right? And so there's, there's certain, there's a certain feeling like I want to feel like I'm out West. I want to feel like a cowboy. I want to feel like I'm in that very specific moment of human or uh, you know, American history. How do you do that? Right. How do you, how do you, is it just a lot of trial and error and just going, all right, let's try this. How does that feel? No, it didn't work. All right, let's try that. Oh, that feels pretty good. Is it just a lot of trial and error or do you kind of have ideas in your mind going in with, with ways that you're going to kind of intersection these things, cross into them and go, oh yeah, that's, that's definitely going to feel like I'm in a gunfight or that's definitely going to feel like I'm uh, writing uh, a, a scientific journal or something like that. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? So, uh, yeah, I mean, the little gunfight mechanism is in say Fistful Meeples is a good example. I was uh, playtesting expansion for it because Coloma is finally coming back into print and Fistful Meeples is also as well. And they both have expansions. They were just on GameFound and did pretty well, which is exciting. So it's, uh, it's been a minute since those been out. The uh, I was playtesting the game, and my friend designer says, "I love how you just put in, you know, rolling off for the the gunfights. If you get a bigger result, you win. It's just rolling two d six one against the other. Your gunfighter against mine." And he's like, I, "I can't believe you would do that. You know, it's, it just seemed like not that it's a roll and move mechanism, but it wasn't really super sophisticated, like you know." Um, Euro gamey kind of a thing to do, and otherwise, you know, worker placement, resource management, cue pusher kind of thing. And I think that you know, my answer is really quick. Is like it's it's a gunfight. <laughs> I mean, you can't know what's going to happen. Because if we took it from a few different possible ways to treat that, it'd be okay. If there's a class of character, let's say the deputy is a better shot than the robber, or vice versa, whatever it may be, what we decide. And if they go into the gunfight, they just simply win. All right, the better shooter always wins, so for it's deterministic. And then you're going to end up with um, people playing chicken and stuff like that. Where it's like, you know, if you put a strong gunfighter out there, I'm not going to put anything weaker than it out there because I know I'm going to lose. You know that I know that, and therefore you won't even put it out there to begin with because you won't lose efficiency. And all of a sudden, there's no gunfights in the Western game, and, and the whole thing just comes to a halt. Um, so it needed to be something where once in a while the the cowpoke can beat you know the bad guy, you know that kind of thing where these things happen the man who shot liberty valence like whatever shenanigans happens uh should be able to happen so the simple mechanism there is that if you have a higher ranked unit let's say the robber is better than the uh, builder that uh if if in the event that they roll lower they get one re-roll so they basically get to take effectively you know two shots for every one that is lower than them so if the deputy who's the best shot the good guys come out there and take that they get this extra roll on that but it's very likely you could you end up shooting the deputy with with a you know you roll a six and then they roll a four and they go okay well if i roll a six then the better shot will win the tie but the likelihood is still that uh if if a lower ranking unit rolls well that they're gonna have a good shot at it and so i looked at that and i looked at the consequences of that action too is this going to completely kneecap somebody if they said oh, i put the deputy out there and it didn't pay off the whole game is lost because of this so i had to look at are the consequences that dire 
Is it going to completely derail you? Is it going to completely hand the game over to the other player? And in that little sandboxy game, um, it's it's good to win those little parts of it, but it's not the way to win the game. There's not actually a strategy where it's just based on doing that repeatedly in order to do that. The game rewards things that are more um, proactive, like uh, say building or mining for gold and doing the things actually gets you more stable points. It's going to raise you up. And these little shoot-offs are kind of like little incidental moments that kind of help you nudge you along the way. And it's also one of the end game timers. So you might try to encourage those to happen to end the game while you're ahead as a tactical play, but it's not actually a means to aggregating, say, the most victory points by just being the best you know, shooter out there in that sandbox. So as I kind of look at what I'm trying to tell as far as the little mini story of the game and the experience of that part, and then looking at the overall ecosystem of how do you actually pursue your goals in the game, how does that fit into the picture? And I felt like a little dice roll off, like that was just kind of the, it's just the right choice, uh, hopefully. <laughs> and it seems like a lot of people enjoy that uh, section of it versus something that say was more, um, needed more maintenance and more forethought or strategic planning. Yeah, I think ultimately it comes down to the question of, does this make sense? If you have a game where it's, it's an agricultural game, right? Where you're growing fruit trees. Uh, it makes sense that at the end you know, of, of the harvest round or harvest season that you might get five apples or you might get four apples from your apple tree. Okay, because that makes sense. Like in the real world, you're not entirely sure how many apples a tree is going to make, but it's going to be you know, within some kind of range. However, if you get to the end of the season and your apple tree randomly makes oranges, it's like, well, hold on. Well, that <laughs> didn't make sense. And so, <laughs> right, but if you have a, a game that has combat, like a gunfight, or right. you know, I make games that are sports, sports themed, mm -hmm. there's a lot of randomness that happens in combat, a lot of randomness that happens throughout you know, a sports match sports game and so to have dice in there and to, to roll things and also have some mitigation have things where if you're a more skilled gunfighter then you could add some you know a plus two to your roll or something like that that makes sense but there's still a chance that your gun backfires your gun doesn't fire at all you you trip and fall because you didn't see that rock as you were running like there's a million things that can happen randomly in these moments and so to have that randomness in the game state makes a lot of sense you know i've been working on a football themed game forever and the thing about that one is you're you're recruiting players that give you different special abilities and different dice. And the actual like games, the football games during play, uh, are really just a roll-off, kind of like your gunfight. Just roll the dice, see what happens. And I've got offensive dice and defensive dice, and the better my players are, the better dice I'm going to roll. But every die still has blank sides. So like even the best player in the game still has some blanks because even the Heisman Trophy winner has a bad game. Like they have an off day, right? And so you might roll much better dice, but kind of randomly end up with some low rolls, whereas your opponent has kind of a sorry team. <laughs> they don't have very, they don't have good, as good of players, but they roll really, really well. And there's some other ways to mitigate things. But another thing I, I kind of balanced everything out where every score at the end of that game. So, you know, I'm rolling my offensive dice, which either give me sevens or threes or blanks, right? So I'm, I'm football points. And then the defensive dice give me stops or maybe a pick six or a safety or something like that. But the scores at the end of each game are like 14 to 10. 28, 21, like it all comes down to very, very believable football scores. Like you don't end nice. up with, you know, right, right. 68 to 22, like, like what? <laughs> is this basketball? Like, what are we doing? And so I think that's another thing is if you have these moments um, of rolling dice that are random to balance the game and, and kind of put the game in such a, a box, you might say, that it still makes sense at the end. Mm -hmm. Right, that I didn't, I didn't shoot you forty-seven times. It's like, well, <laughs> right, right. I need to hit you once. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> or something like that. Right? Yeah, those numbers are interesting. I, I like how you actually curated your um, 
your numbers or your score to be analogous to what you'd expect in the game. And sometimes I feel like um, like money in games a lot of times has to be it's it's a little it's a little bit weird sometimes when they just talk like oh here's a five but it's really a five hundred or it's really a five thousand to try to to try to put it within the scale of what it would actually cost to do something. Like, I'm going to build this castle with two wood and a rock, and it's kind of like you can't even build a campfire with two wood and a rock, buddy. Like <laughs> you know, let alone a castle. But you have right. to kind of represent that you know this this one unit of wood is you know an entire forest worth of wood or whatever it is. It's it's been reduced yeah. to a certain point. But other things uh, thematically are hard to do that with like, Oh, I, you know, I shot this, you know, guy 47 times with a six shooter. Well, that's not going to make sense in the wild west sort of thing. But if you had a fleet of, um, star fighters and they're all in converging on some big old base or something like that, those numbers would make sense to have, you know, the numbers add up and have fractions that are different. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at uh, what they call dirty word, uh, ludo narrative dissonance or consonance, uh, is when those things, uh, actually make sense. And I think if you get enough of those head scratcher mechanisms or something like this, and all of a sudden, uh, it, it doesn't work for the game and people start to ask questions. And then I start asking other questions like, you know, why am I even rolling dice and who made this game? And, and they kind of go, they, they break the, the bubble and they start to look at it like they're outside the matrix all of a sudden they want to know why everything happens why is why is a game a game and then we have to come back here and be like it's a game you're you you have to release a certain amount of simulation uh requirements and just know that a game's a game yeah and this is something i talk to writers and game designers anyone that deals with creating that bubble, like you're saying, right? And it's this concept of verisimilitude. And verisimilitude doesn't mean this is realistic necessarily. It just, it, it's, it basically means that you're, you're drawing someone in to where they go, this feels real. Even if they're watching a high fantasy you know, show or playing a high fantasy game with dragons and magical spells, or you're playing a science fiction game with all sorts of crazy stuff going on, it's not that you believe this is true, but you, you believe the world, like you're in the moment and you, you accept it as it is. Right. But as soon as you introduce something that doesn't fit, that immediately it pulls a person out of that kind of magical space and they go, Oh, I'm watching a show now. Oh, this was scripted. Someone mm -hmm. wrote that dialogue. Right, well, duh. Right. Like we all know that they wrote the dialogue, but if you've written the dialogue in such a way that it doesn't make sense, or like the characters are, are saying things like, well, that doesn't fit with who I know this character to be, or that doesn't fit the theme of this. Like, what is this random mechanism that now I have to do? Oh, this was the game designer had to figure out a way to balance something and they couldn't come up with a good way to do it. And so they just kind of tacked this on. And now I'm kind of outside. I've lost that verisimilitude, right? And so thinking through how to best bring out the theme of a game through the mechanism, through the player experience, it, it's worth taking your time. Right. It's where, you know, sometimes you have a deadline and you just got to throw something in there because it makes it work. And this needs to be this just because we, we got to get it out the door. I get that. But as long, if you can take the time to really make it feel good. I, one example I always go back to is the game Villainous, where there's the, the Captain Hook character. And it's, I think it's the crocodile card. Like if something happens, it causes you to discard your hand. Well, that's <laughs> about as brilliant of a mechanism as I can think of. Right. right of marrying the, the gameplay with the theme, right? And it's like, what a wonderful way. And the more you can do that, the more you can go, you can go, you can get players to go, oh, that's clever. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, that's really good. The more they're going to remember your game, the more they're going to want to come back to it. And the easier it is to learn the rules. So tell me about that a little bit. When you're designing one of these games, 
it makes sense to roll a D6 when I'm shooting a six shooter gun. Uh, duh. You know, and so what are some other things you're thinking about as far as like making the game just easier to comprehend from this player experience, from this verisimilitude kind of idea? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we spoke a while back and a lot of the when people think about theme, sometimes they really think, oh, uh, you know, bear trash game or big simulation game where there's just all this stuff and there maybe maybe it's loaded with a lot of um, lore or maybe it's loaded with a lot of historic stuff to really create this whole thematic setting and um, you know I'm a little biased towards euro games and things like this I kind of look back at some of the simpler things where a theme or a setting just assists uh, what's going on so like the, the simple one is if you have a little unit that looks like a sailboat and you have a, a body of water on your board, most likely people aren't going to go driving the sailboat across the desert part of the board um, to get to the next ocean, right? Even they say, well, you know, they, they carried it. Um, it's one of those things where, you know, the metaphor is strong enough that people usually think the right units go into their spots. And there's, there's a lot of ways to um, implement that. And so I kind of look at rules overhead gets reduced when a lot of things just make sense thematically why they're doing what they're doing and uh, as far as just simple ux stuff even if something doesn't really have a strong theme sometimes things will just um, fit in a certain way where sometimes something is shows a lock on it and something else shows a key on it and maybe it's not a game about dungeons and locks and keys and locksmiths or anything like that but the metaphor of a key and a lock and these things go together in order to you know open something up is strong enough that uh, you can use the, that iconography to communicate something. Now, if the game also makes sense to have uh, an actual like old school looking key on a chain and an actual lock over the top of say a treasure chest, something like that. Well, that totally makes sense. And it's like, yay. Where if, I don't know if it was set in the far future, maybe that lock looks more like, you know, some sort of weird box with glowy bits on it. And you have to insert some, you know, retinal scan or a microchip or something to unlock it. And if we just showed like weird ambiguous box with like retinal scan icon, you're going like, I don't know, like, oh, those open, you'd have to have a rule that tells you this is a, this is a locked case. And this is the key where the metaphor is so strong with some of the simpler things. And I think working in certain themes, uh, allows us to have that those toolkits available for something like that if we were building something in a space game i don't know if a hammer is just the same sort of workman's tool as it would be in like the game you know stone age or something where you know hammer is just the the thing um and at some point you know we look at the the shapes of some of these icons like the very infrequently do we have, you know, a telephone that actually has the, the earpiece and kind of looks like that. But we still think, um, at least currently, that that's the phone shape. It's not the, you know, the earpiece in front of the mouth and holding the other to your ear. It's kind of like the the one the one shape thing that we think about. But a lot of times, the you know, phones are flat and this other sorts of things. So it's like, how do we communicate through icons the function of something? And then is there a way within that game to still make it work? So long story short, I'm going to look at a really nuanced thing. So there is a type of card in the game Endless Winter, which is set in the Paleo-American uh, times. And it's effectively like what we would think in a bulletin board or something like this, that it's sticky. You play this card and it stays in play and it doesn't go away when the rest of the cards in the game continually go away. What would make perfect sense is the old thumbtack for a sticky post in the forum or anything like that. It's like, 
putting a thumbtack in this Paleo-American game just didn't make sense. And so I talked to the artist, graphic designers, like, well, what if we take like a tusk and it's been jabbed into something and the note is actually a little piece of like hide that looks like a hide's been pinned up there. So effectively at Metaphor, people are used to like something as sticky has been pinned to something has now been executed with materials that uh, fit the theme of the game and didn't break that immersion. Because if I was like, playing a Stone Age game, all of a sudden I'm seeing thumbtacks and jetpacks and all kinds of things that don't make sense. I go, oh, this makes sense for the UX, but it doesn't make sense for my experience here. And can you find a way to repurpose that? Almost like flintstones sort of thing to make it work in its uh, gamery context as well as the thematic setting. And so that way it's, it, at worst, you're just kind of like kind of stickering that, oh, it's, it's funny that they did this thing, you know, the Flintstone cars, you know, there's no actual motor, they're using their feet to do it, but it effectively looks this way. And sure, they didn't do that, but they could have, and it's funny. Um, at least you kind of get in there where it becomes funny instead of just like what you're talking about. You break that immersion, you step out, you start questioning everything, you start wondering what other band-aids are in this game due to mechanistic problems or UX hiccups that they couldn't get around, or did they just phone the thing in? Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, I love that idea of first of all being being conscious as the game designer about ways to do this through graphic design through the art like it's not just the mechanism and like how the game is designed it's all these things working together and to really think about that uh, and then realize sometimes you're just you're just not going to be able to figure it out either and and sometimes you just kind of have to go this is this is okay <laughs> i ran into a situation where i was designing a game set in the 80s and i had this energy chart basically to say okay these are the dice that are available. These are the dice that have been spent. And to represent that, we had a full battery and an empty battery as the icons. Well, after the game came out, I had somebody send me a message and they're like, hey, you know, this type of battery wasn't invented until like 1997. And it's like, it, for that one person, it totally screwed up the immersion <laughs> because they're like, this game's not set in the 80s because they have an icon of the wrong kind of battery. And I'm like, my bad, oh my dude. Gosh. Like, I don't know. Like, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you just gotta, it's it's okay. Like, just kinda let it go. But um, but it is something to definitely be aware of and to think about and, and to lean into as much as you can. One thing, one thing I want to go back and, and, and circle back around to is this idea of fuzzy logic. I think I think you mentioned this like even before we started recording, of introducing these moments where it's kind of fuzzy. And so tell me, like, what do you mean by fuzzy logic and how does that apply to your your game design for the player experience? Yeah, so uh, in mathematics, there's kind of a more, you know, fancy version of what fuzzy logic actually means in Wikipedia and people debate that. But for, let's just say for our, our purposes, um, we could kind of juxtapose that or compare it to maybe crunching something or, with the, you know, oh, this game is puzzly, this game is crunchy. And often what that times means is that there's a lot of figuring out of things you're just you're just going to go through this process and you will arrive at a sum and that sum is comparative to some other sum so you can actually say if i do this chain of actions and say i dry run it and then i come out and say this is going to net me now five points if i've done this other chain of actions where i maybe maybe i set the set collect in uniform and that's gonna get me five points or i set collect in diverse sets oh that's gonna net me six points and so you kind of look and go, oh, I'll do the thing that gets me six points. So there's really no contingency on whether which thing to do. There's just whoever does the math slightly better, cares about the small numbers, and then adding up is going to be a better player at a game like that. If we looked at introducing like a fuzzy thing in there, it's kind of like, what if I had a sure bet to get five points and a 
potential to maybe get four points, but the potential to get six by doing this other thing that's kind of like swings a little bit. There's still a floor, but it swings a little bit or a lot. Like, would I take five points now for sure? Or would I take zero or 10 points later? And so comparing those two things creates that sort of thing is that kind of fuzz comes in there where it's you're playing with a spectrum of what might actually work out. And you look at trials. Do I get one shot at this thing or do I get multiple tries um, to try to say, let's say I have to find the other half of a treasure map in a deck of cards. And I find the first half early in the game and I could think I have the entire rest of the game with many draws to try to find the second half of the treasure map and go, okay, that's a relatively safe bet versus doing something that's just, you know, finding a doubloon, a doubloon one at a time and just taking a sure bet. Because uh, you're kind of gauging the overall length of the game and how many trials you're going to have to find that thing. And that's a very fuzzy sort of stuff. And you could look at the psychology of what you might think is like, what if I found the first half of the treasure map on my last turn? Well, you don't have another turn to do that, so you know it's effectively worthless, right? And so then you roll it back one turn before that. You go like, what's the odds if I find a relatively rare thing in a distribution on my penultimate turn and then the other half pays off in this? Should I take a safer bet at that point? Just opt for the, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to take the one doubloon because I just don't think it's possible that I'm going to find the other half of the treasure map with one more card draw. It's that sort of thing. So um, one of my favorite answers when people say, hey, is this better in, or is this better when they're asking a designer at the table or advice on something? And you can just say, well, it depends. And then, you know, they go, well, you, you know, is there a hint? You go, yeah, well, this is, this is a safer bet. This one's a little riskier bet. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in between that um, where we look at the difference between uh, utility. It's, you know, the capital U, if we want to call it that way, which just means, um, you know, if, you've, if you're already filthy rich, the utility of having $100 is just doesn't mean anything to you. So you might be looking at something else. If you're absolutely destitute, $100 could mean a huge amount. It could be the difference between, you know, surviving another day. It's huge. So you look at the utility of something like that, and then you look at the utility of something more abstracted, like, um, you know, is just getting more wood in the resource management game better? At a point, you go, like, I couldn't even spend all this if I tried by the time the game's at end versus saying having the opportunity to get less of that, like, well, I could throw away two wood, but I could take one stone for every two that I throw away at the surplus. Is that efficient? You have to look at if we're just balancing the scales of just having more stuff is better. Yeah, it's better to have just have more stuff. Is that worth points? Do you win? No. And it comes back to having that valuation that I need stone and wood in order to build this castle. Um, therefore, my surplus, it's it doesn't matter if I'm doing inefficient things just to throw it away because I acquired it somehow in order to then build the thing that actually gets you the victory points and that sort of thing. So that's where we have to look at a spreadsheet might just say wood is evaluated at this and stone is evaluated like this on a spreadsheet. And so therefore, if I say, well, if I have 10 wood, then I've got 10 units of utility. And if I have 10 stone, I have 10 units. It's like, no, because you need those things to happen, let's say in relative parity, that you need to have this path dependent need of wood and a stone or stone and a wood in a pair to actually make the equation turn into spits out a victory point or castle, whatever it may be. And so that's that kind of third thing I think that people don't really think about is, do we just qualitatively look at how much is each of these units worth in relative isolation? Or do we look at the fact that they have to be effectively set collected across different things and then transmuted and 
turn into something else. And then you look at other contingencies. It's like, sure, if I save up all the resources early game, well, how many build actions do I actually get? You go like, oh, there's only one build action. I can only build one thing, so I won't be able to do this. Or are the plots of land also being um, contested where it's like these plots of land require less more. So if you do it early, you're locking yourself in for a better position. So you look at this other vector, which is like taking away this whole idea of just sitting here. I'm going to balance the books between my wood investment, and my stone investment. It's like, no, look at all these things as a designer, bring those other things in there on purpose, you know, create that, uh, you know, how often can you actually build the things? Uh, what are the interesting combinations? What are the discounts? What are the rebates you could get? What are the other players doing to slow you down as far as getting that sort of thing? Can you aggregate a bunch of one thing and not worry about it while you then go and do the other things as quickly as you can? Uh, all those decisions are what makes a game to me more of more of a game than, uh, let's say, just a puzzle of acquiring the most things. And um, some games, it's like money needs to be spent. And then you see a game ends and somebody goes, gosh, I came in last and I have this heap of gold. It's like, I know the heuristic is to, you know, Scrooge McDuck this and just keep a bunch of gold. But the game actually wants you to spend it. And you could have zero gold at the end of the game as long as you've acquired this other thing, say victory points or the win state, like I've built the thing that wins the game, whatever that is, um, to really encourage people to go that way. And uh, I've side tangent is I would say I would dangle carrots in order to make people do that versus punish them for having excess gold, which would be a stick or to systematically say um, your piggy bank is full. Once you have 10 doubloons, therefore, you know, your 11th and so on is, is foregone. And that would encourage people to not like hit their ceiling on that. But ultimately it's administrative and frustrating has to be checked. Uh, the punishment one makes people scared of the thing to acquire it in the first place. Cause they feel like, going to all oh, you can eat sushi or something like this where if you don't finish that last roll they charge you for overage you're like oh it puts you in this whole dilemma versus just dangling the carrot saying like look all this awesome glory and stuff happens and player abilities unlock all the fun stuff happens when you build in this game so you know throw all these cubes and doubloons away and go do the fun thing and explore and and have something in front of you that looks really exciting all those like soft incentives to do the fun thing that the game presents and see that the currency is just a means to do that and not get hung up on the fact that this currency just looks cool in the big pile in front of you. Yeah. When I was designing the first hunted game or the first few hunted games, uh, one of them is inspired by Die Hard. And what was so funny when I was watching playtesters play it and I'm just kind of staring at them and I'm you know trying to figure out, okay, how are you going to handle this based on how you probably should handle it based on how the game overall works. And 100% of the time, when somebody was playing the game for the first time, they would play out these cards and then they would push their luck too far and they would have to fight all these terrorists. And they would just get wrecked and they wouldn't even come close to winning. And they would look at me and like, what? I don't understand what I did wrong. I'm like, think about the movie Die Hard. There was one hero and a hundred terrorists. If he just goes in gun bla guns blazing, he dies. Like you have to hide. You have to like, don't push your luck. And, and all of a sudden you're fighting all these terrorists. You're going to get shot. <laughs> And then when they play it the, the next go round, now they're a little more cautious. Now they're hiding more. Now they're like getting cards out of the row faster and not running into as many combat situations. And then they would either, you know, get, they not necessarily win because there's still a few other things you get to you know, comprehend and master, but they would at least get a lot closer to winning. It's like, yeah, like, doesn't that make more sense? And so I think, like you're saying, getting your game mechanisms, even if a player gets to the end, like Scrooge McDuck, and they're like, oh, I lost. It's like, yeah, you're. You've got a hundred gold there. If you'd spent all that, you might have won. Uh, but getting them to like 
at least for the second go round, go, ah, okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. But one thing I want to go back to that you mentioned earlier, the whole idea of, okay, I can take the safe bet or I can take the riskier one that gets me zero or gets me double. What I love about that concept is that you are designing a game for multiple player types. Some people play it safe. They're like, I'm going to try to win by doing the smart thing, making a quote unquote right decision. But then other players like me are like, I want to, if I'm going to win, I want it to be cool. Like I want to win in an interesting way. I want to win, you know, because I I threw the Hail Mary at the end and you know, there are only two turns left and I I drew the map card and I'm like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to push my luck. I'm going to see if I can, I've got one draw and I'm going to see if I can find the other half of that map. And if I do, it's amazing. It's a cool story. It's a fun moment. If I don't, no worries. It's just a game. But, um, but you're designing games for different types of people. And that way on game night, when different types of folks are around the table, everybody has something to enjoy. Everybody's having fun. Everybody have, has a story and a moment to remember. I think that's just really smart as well. And so, Johnny, this has been excellent. Any, any kind of closing thoughts, anything else you want to leave people with as far as things to think about designing and player experience? Um, so what, what are the things that I see at some proto spiels and things like this, which worries me a little bit, is that there's a certain type of person, sometimes a designer, who thinks that the more determined things are is better because it can be thought about, it can be solved, and it's puzzly. It's like this, the better player will always win because it does show their skill without anything obfuscating what that skill could be, which would be, you know, those random variances. Um, I think that's a little bit of a straw man argument because, like, if we saw you at the, say, end of a game and we all knew that it would be a real tail event if you were to firstly draw the first say map segment and then also that the deck was shuffled or the dice were rolled in such a way that you were able to find the second at the zero hour and we'd ultimately see that oh does that mean the less skilled you know the best skilled player won or whatever else it's like there's some insecurity there i think that that those players have where it's like no we, we can tell you're a very good player because you did do all these other things and the reason you lost this time was because the high variance outlier funny thing happened. It's like finding the golden ticket, even though you didn't have nearly as many as Veruca Salts, you know, got the whole factory looking for the golden tickets, but, you know, Charlie just happens to open up the one that he saved up for and was given to him, and it happened to be the golden ticket there. It's that kind of thing where it's like, we don't have to suddenly think like, oh, well, you know, does that mean Veruca Salts not good at, you know, finding golden tickets in a massive factory? It's like, no, it just shows that tail events High variance events are generally recognized by players, and it doesn't diminish the skill of players who can create that floor and that consistency. And if they need to look at, uh, if their you know ego is a little bit need to be in check, they can just go and look look at repeated plays, and you'll see that the skilled player will in fact win against these outlier events. Um, and so it's like it's true. So we don't need to have a really deterministic game that has no dice, no card draws zero luck everything is in the market is out front at the very start of the game uh it's fully understood and you know air quotes balanced by the designers and therefore it's just a competition of true skill versus skill Uh, my argument is that you can bring in fuzzy logic you can bring the dice bring in the cards bring in input randomness output randomness all that sort of stuff and as long as there's a transparency and understanding that what are those risks that you're taking is it uh, you know, is this down the, the middle or is this zero or double? That risk that you're just describing there. If you and the other players see that people are taking those risks and what the what the payoff matrix is, then that transparency right there to me justifies the whole 
process and ultimately allows you to have a more thematic, enjoyable and interesting variable game than one that could be repeated if players were to say, see the starting conditions and then repeat that same play with making maybe only small tactical adjustments. Um, so I'm, I'm big in favor of kind of loosening loosening up that fabric a little bit and bringing the people back into it and bringing the you know variable elements, whether that's player uncertainty all the way down to die rolls and all these other things. And again, the difference between input and output randomness is really just a matter of uh, is it the right tool for the job? I think output randomness is fantastic for combat resolution. I think input randomness is wonderful for uh, seeing a variety of choices that you could then respond to and build something, make something out of, and that everything in between um, makes sense too in the right context. And just design with that in mind and just know that none of these things are behind glass. Heck, go make a roll and move. I'm sure in this day and age, you can make a fantastic roll and move if you work it into the the theme and the mechanistic supporting mechanisms would make that work. So, uh, so don't, 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 uh, don't think deterministic things are intrinsically better than things that have uncertainty decisions under uncertainty or and risks are some of the most enjoyable things I think out there in games. Yeah, absolutely. I talked to James Ernest recently. And one of the things he talked about is one of the main things that creates fun in games is surprise. And really leaning into how can you utilize surprise in your games, in the mechanisms, because that's that's where a lot of like the, oh, wow, kind of moments can come from. And if everything's deterministic, you, you don't have that surprise necessarily. And so you're, you're it's going to be a little bit harder to have like, now, now some people love that, like to be fair. Like, it's not like, again, don't do that. It's what kind of experience are you going for? And don't feel like you are stuck doing anything. You can make Anything you can make randomness work for you, even if the game is supposed to be more on the deterministic side, as long as it's done well. So I think that's something for, for designers just to keep in mind. But Johnny, I'm excited for you, man, because you have a really cool project that you're working on, and tell people about that because I, I can't wait to see what you're going to do with it. Okay, so this was uh, so Gen Con is just starting at the time of this recording, and um, this was just announced by Fantasia Games, the publisher that I'm the internal game design developer for. Um, and a while back, quick story into there, we heard that the Wolfgang Kramer's The Princess of Florence license was floating around and we asked if it was available and some other publisher had already gotten it. So while we had Wolfgang Kramer, who's one of my favorite designers, an incredible designer, legendary. Um, always say had him on the line, the, the email line. We asked, well, do you have any other games? And uh, the publisher wrote back and says, yeah, I only had a few things available. There's some Coliseum game uh, from, you know, 2006-7. And I was like, what? And so at the time, uh, you know, Days of Wonder started that game, and then TMG uh, did a version of it, and then TMG since has folded and relinquished the rights to, you know, their catalog. So it was back in uh, Wolfgang Kramer's catalog to acquire. And I was like, oh my God, please, 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 can we get it? And so the publisher was like, all right, you know, we could look into making a cool version of this. It's like the Days of Wonder, but better and bigger and all this. And we could have a contemporary artist, like we've been working with Demicho and see if we can make this thing work. And so we negotiated for the rights, which is really exciting just to know I'd be just kind of in the background helping pick out the, the specs of the new Coliseum and the art direction and things that we can improve and having um really love that game and having both editions i could kind of see what could help push it along so that was, that was super exciting and um while we're at it um 
the publisher came up with this idea says hey you know how you know brass was a classic game and they come up with black brass uh lancashire and birmingham in this campaign they were kind of like selling these two games and one of them was kind of a they brought on expert designer they redid a bunch of things and birmingham is you know one of the highest rated games ever actually um so it's very very well received and the lancashire is more uh akin to the original so they said what if we did something like that where we did like a coliseum game that's a little bit more gamery a little bit more contemporary because the other one's you know 2007 release i'll say and what what can we do with that so i wrote up a proposal to uh kramer marcus i said hey what would you guys think of you know doing this kind of like co-design thing where we come up with this idea and it would take some of the elements from Colosseum, but it'd be more of a heavier, crunchier contemporary Euro game, what we'd expect from there. And uh, I remember like sending that email off and just like, who am I kidding? Oh my gosh, I'm just this upstart. And there's these, you know, I'm sending a proposal to Wolfgang Kramer. I'm just like, oh, and that, that was like an uncomfortable 24 hours while I waited. And I saw the email come back and he says, oh, this is, this sounds really cool and interesting. We love these ideas. And then eventually leading to the contract, which, you know, it's like, I got to sign a contract with, with Wolfgang and do this co-design. And so we've just uh, announced both those games uh, today. The Eno Tool is doing the graphic design and art direction on both games. Uh, the Micho is doing the artwork on the original Colosseum, which is going to have cosmetic facelifts. It's going to have some small rules upgrades, and it's also going to have the original rules available in the box so people want to play like the straight as they love it, know it uh, version. It'll be available in that box. And then these will be kind of launched together um, next year as a big, big campaign, and we'll see how it does. And I am super excited. It's like working on one of my favorite games, favorite designers, and also get to be a creative leg in that experience, not just um, you know proofing the rule book or something like that. So it's it's really right. exciting. Yeah, that's awesome, dude. I'm so happy for you. Really Thanks. excited to see kind of how you bring this idea to life. I think it's going to be a cool new version. Uh, you know, I love the old one. It was one of the games that I, I cannot tell you how many times I tried to retheme it and do like a do it in a different way. Right when I was first starting out in game design, it was one of those. It's like, okay, I want to do Coliseum, but instead you're the you're the owner of a football team, right? And so you're creating that. Like I can't tell you how many times. And so anyway, I'm excited to see the new direction and all of that. But Johnny. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Thanks for having me on. It's fantastic. It's great talking to you.